Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast, actually Under Rum Podcast for today. And I am joined by my good friend, my business partner, my, my mate, the, the dear Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen, who's, let me describe what I'm seeing for everybody. So as, as, as most of you know, Jason and I will FaceTime one another. We record locally. So we get to see one another while we record. Now, I'm drinking tea because I'm on a bit of a juice fast right now. And, and of course, Jason is ribbing me for that. But I'm watching him mouth a drooling as he's nosing something that's incredibly dark and incredibly inviting looking. Jason, how are you and what's in your glass? I'm very well, thank you. I'm enjoying a tasty little treat that I picked up after our interview with with Richard, All right. guest, Richard Seal of Foursquare. Okay. And I picked up Sagacity, which is a blend of, of ex-bourbon and ex-Madeira matured pot and column still rums. Oh, nice. From Foursquare and bottled at 48% alcohol. That's an interesting ABV. Yeah, 48 yeah, I've seen I've seen the ABVs on Foursquare Rums kind of run the gamut with, you know, thankfully a fair bit of it put out, you know, in in the fifties, you know, maybe not cask strength, but a good good strength, and I think this might be the first time, at least to memory, that I've seen forty eight percent. How's uh, how are you liking that one at forty eight? Yeah, really tasty. Really tasty. When you and I were conducting the interview, we were drinking the cask strength single blend rums that they put out. Correct. I had, in fact, you know, I'm like I said, I'm juice fasting, so I'm not, uh, I'm not having anything to drink. But uh, I was at that time drinking the uh, Dominus, Dominus, Dominus. I was drinking the 2005 and 2007 mm-hmm. annual releases. There you go. <laughs> We did have a lovely time. Um, you said in the intro, One Nation Under Rum, and that was coined by our friend Mitch on the on our very first ever rum-focused episode. That's very where true. Where we talked black tot rum. And um, there was that, there was the July 31. This is amazing. We're, we're recording here in the beginning of September. And I'm thinking back to that Mitch interview and that Mitch episode that ran middle of July. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like two weeks ago. I know. And I can't get my head around that there's a full August in between us now. It, we, we, we make light of it all the time, but time really has no meaning right now. <laughs> August. I've totally lost the plot on time. Yeah, I mean, August feels like... I, I remember August 3rd, and then I remember August 27th, because that's my oldest daughter's birthday... And then today is September 1. Like, oh, where did Why the rest do you remember of the August 3rd? Should I be remembering August 3rd for a reason? Come on, Jason. Oh, no. This is embarrassing. Really? August 3rd. Really? August no, 3rd. I, I don't. There's no reason. <laughs> I just remember, okay. I just remember okay. looking at my watch and it said August 3rd and, and saying, oh, crap, it's August already? <laughs> That's all. <laughs> it's no special and now date. it's September. Uh-huh. Oh, crap, it's September oh, already. It does pass. Um, I was talking in the Mitch episode about uh, picking up Rum, the manual by Dave Broom. Mm-hmm. And 
and and I, I read that. And then since then, I've picked up And a Bottle of Rum, A History of the New World in Ten Cocktails by Wayne Curtis. Mm. And, and I read my way through that, and it was very interesting, very well done as well. Gave me a really nice bearing for this kind of global rum scene. And, and then I went out and, and returned to our friend Dave Broom, and I picked up his, his coffee table book, which is simply called Rum. Uh, and again, it's, it's a bit of that history, mm. but the photography in it is wonderful. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. And today, as we're talking with Richard about the crop and the harvest yeah, yeah. and the distillation... It's been really nice going through the Dave Broom book, the coffee table book, Rum, and seeing the, the people, seeing them next to the crop, seeing them during the harvest, seeing the, uh, the distillation run. Uh, and there's a, there's a part in today's interview where Richard will talk about a really innovative distillation setup hmm. at Foursquare. And I've been looking over it. Uh, in the in the Dave Broom book, and it really is a captivating way to distill, and you can you can see the way in which you would get a nice clean spirit from it, but at the same time have a very flavorful spirit from it, hmm. and and one of the things that that you and I talk about in our our own lives, our our separate conversations, and then we we address with Richard in the interview is it never fails to amaze me how well Foursquare is received by whiskey drinkers. No, it's amazing. Right? It's yeah. so interesting talking about rum as a category. And, and as we did with Mitch, we talked about flavor profiles and flavor categories. And, mm. you know, could you say this island gives you this and that island gives you that? And we... We talk about it a little bit with Richard as well. But it's so interesting to think you can you can go from weird, cheesy, funky notes in a rum to a weird acetone or pear drop or nail polish mm-hmm. note in a rum to a tire fire <laughs> note yep. in a different rum. And there's there's just these massive broad strokes of flavor. Yeah. And then you can talk Foursquare. And virtually every whiskey drinker I've put it in front of has just said, oh, that's yes, that's really good. It's like a comfortable chair, you know? It, mm. I was on Facebook, believe it or not, I was on Facebook. And mm. I was in a, I was in a That group. should be your next fast. <laughs> now you're on a juice fast. Next you should have a Facebook uh, fast. That'll do more good for you. It probably will. I think it would do a lot of people good if we all just went on <laughs> a Facebook fast. Anyway, I was in uh, one of my and I don't I'm not part of a lot of whiskey or spirits focused groups because I kind of grow tired of just scrolling past pictures of bottles and crotch shots yep. and all that other stuff of bottles. I was going to say, you're only in it for the dicks. I'm only in it for the dicks. And um, and so I was in one called Scotch Addict, which is one that I probably frequent the most. I think it's a, a fun little 
page there, and someone had said, what do you all think about mezcal? I said, I know this is a scotch page, but what do you think about mezcal? And my initial response, without thinking, this was just my knee-jerk response was that it's the only spirit that rivals the complexity of scotch whiskey, and isn't it amazing? It's not, it's rarely, if ever, even aged. And I think that that is a fair comment because mezcal can, just like rum, right? Like you were explaining, the flavors can vary and and it's not even aged. Like you don't even have oak presenting flavors mm-hmm. in there. But then someone's response, and this is a correct response, was, so I take it you've never heard of rum, <laughs> right? You have so many different countries producing different styles yeah. of rum, different stills, different wood type, different processes, etc., that the flavors run the gamut. The only difference is, when it comes to scotch, everything is relegated to being produced in Scotland, whereas in rum, it gets so wide and varied because it's made all over the world from different cultures and different people. And What surprises me about the rum world, and, and why I've got Wayne Curtis's book in front of me here, is as a Scotch guy who doesn't drink really any Scotch cocktails, mm. it surprises me that rum is so much a cocktail ingredient. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. as a Scotch drinker, I'm loving the exploration of the rum category as I'm encountering those notes that I mentioned earlier, the big wacky cheesy notes, the big funky heavy notes, the tire fire notes, which I'm maybe not loving quite as much. But 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 in general, I'm, I'm loving this exploration of flavor. Mm-hmm. And, and the thought of rum, and I say just, I'm clearly not a mixologist, and I'm clearly downplaying you know, the joy of a good cocktail. But kind of the the loss or turning that flavor mm. into a component within a wider drink. I understand cocktails. I, I can see how they work. Our, our conversation with Amanda Schuster showed the ways in which cocktails um, can be deliciously elevating. Yeah, and I know you've got a few cocktails of your own that you exactly. that, that you do. Yeah, go on, sorry. Exactly. No, no, no. And so it's interesting, you know, as you and I, approach whiskey drinkers with rum and say, what do you think of that? What do you get in that? What do you think of that? There's a sipping rum. There's a rum you could just pour a measure of and sit and enjoy. Just like, um, it's funny actually, I don't, I I think I've maybe briefly mentioned this in some, in another episode, but the joke in the second half of the Black Tot, the the Mitch episode, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was that you hadn't sent me a sample of it, and so I was just sitting idly on the sidelines uh-huh. as you and and Mitch were enjoying your pours of Black Tot. Uh-huh. It was delicious. Ollie Chilton, who's the blender of Black Tot, and a, a good friend of ours, reached out to me, couldn't believe the way in which I'd been let down by my very good friend and business partner and sent me a bottle of Black Tot rum for me to sit and sit on, sip on, mm. sit on, uh, <laughs> sip on, and and enjoy. And so that's why I'm making this point. Black Tot's a sipper. Foursquare, all my experience with Foursquare is as a sipper. 
this 48% bourbon meets Madeira, great little sipper. If anything, it might be too easy to drink because 48% is not giving me any kind of bite on my palate mm. that would suggest I take it easy. Instead, it's just sweet and scrumptious and just absolutely disappearing down my throat. Wow. I've actually, you can see my hands are empty. <laughs> There's a joke in there. I <laughs> purposely put my glass on my desk to stop drinking it ah. because it's just too easy. Okay, so when I saw what you poured, I said, oofed, that's a hat and pour. And then when I saw you put the glass, to, and for those listeners that don't understand what a hat and pour is, I'm very generous with my pours, whereas Jason is very Scottish with his pours. Anyway. The term is judicious. He's judicious. Jason is judicious with his pours. That's what I said. You're Scottish with your pours. <laughs> you were suggesting parsimonious, and I will stand by judicious. If you keep talking that way, I'm going to be peeing. Anyway. That's a little nod to anybody who's listened to previous episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so when you would put the glass... Are you spelling P-ing? P P A A N? Yeah, yeah. And so when you would put the glass down, I thought what you were about to tell me was that it was so good, you just downed the hat and pour... And, and therefore, you're out of rum. But instead, you exhibited a, a little bit of self-control and put your glass down. And I just want every listener to know now that you have the glass in your hand and you're staring longingly at the liquid as it swirls around in your glass. Let me just say, when we come back out of the interview with Richard, I will be three deep in one of these. A lot of our listeners are very much whiskey-focused that are either A, looking to dip a toe into rum, or B, maybe they know a good deal about rum, but are still keen to, to listen to it. So my hope is, at least in the outset, for those that are looking to dip a toe into rum, I wonder if you could just give us sort of a, a brief history of, of yourself and the Foursquare Rum Distillery, what you guys are doing and have been doing for rum. If I'm speaking to a whiskey audience, but in particular a Scotch whiskey audience, and I, I gather your audience is, certainly has a Scotch whiskey audience. Correct. It's it's actually very then becomes very easy to 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 put in context the rum from places like Barbados or Jamaica, the older producers, you know, the ex uh, British colony producers, because obviously we have that historic link. And let me explain a little bit further what I mean is, you know, with Scotch whiskey, you have this historic separation between distillery and blender mm. and all the great mm -hmm. blending names. And of course, that's why you have the independent bottlings. And I think it's actually not so well appreciated how recent distillery brands are, you know, the single malt brands. Mm -hmm. And you can see this analog in rum when you look at in the traditional producers of, you know, Barbados and Jamaica. That gives you a context in which to explain who we are because my family started as a blender, merchant blending. And of course, in those days, not unlike the Scotch whiskey blenders, they were, they were traders. They, they, they dealt in 
in many cases, a range of wine and spirits or wine and spirits and food provisions, etc. Mm-hmm. And the same way you bought from available estates and did your blends and you put your blends under your name. And so that's the start of my family, my great grandfather in the twenties. Okay. And it's also the start of several of the other brands that we still produce, some of which are not exported. The most, our core brand to which we do export is, is Dorley's, which is from Martin Dorley, a previous blender. Mm-hmm. And, but there's several others that we still also produce at home. Another blending name that is known in the States is through uh, our Falernum, which is John D. Taylor's Falernum. So John D. Taylor was another of these merchant blenders. Because all of these merchant blenders did Brahman Falernum. Okay. So there was an RLC Falernum and there was a Martin Dorley Falernum. And you can see the analog again over in, in Jamaica. So in Jamaica, you have a Ray and Nephew and an Appleton. A Ray and Nephew acquired Appleton, I think, in 1917. Hmm. But again, you have, again, your legacy, your your blenders were, you know, Jay Ray, uh, Fred Myers, uh, and the ones that are gone, Edwin Charlie, Daniel Finzi, and there's a couple of others. Hmm. And the same way now you kind of have a blur in Scotch whiskey between blending brand and distillery because they're all under, you know, one umbrella. Well, sure. J. Ray acquired Appleton, so obviously all of the J. Ray products are from Appleton. Sure. So the difference with us is we acquired Foursquare. But just to be clear, Foursquare was a shut, uh, well, sugar factory to be precise when we purchased it and refurbished it. Okay. And so Foursquare is way older than us in the sense that they're growing cane uh, in that area of Foursquare from since the mid-1600s. Mm-hmm. We can identify the estate that became Foursquare. There were a number of small estates in that area, and the entire area was called Foursquare. Uh, we can we can identify that estate from early 1700s, and the oldest building at Foursquare dates to about 1730. And then the Foursquare that we kind of recognize today, more or less taken over what was three or four estates in the area, is from about the early 1800s, I think about 1803 or so. And so Foursquare was an estate, and as all estates did then, I mean, there used to be hundreds of them, but by about the mid-1800s, about 400 to 500 estates in Barbados, which hmm. is still a lot from the island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But all of them did. In the mid sort of mid to late 1900s, there were, I think, by the end of 1900s, there were about 430 estates. But the difference then was, is every single estate made sugar and molasses and rum. Well, by the 1900s, a hell of a lot had dropped through the rum. But the, the key point I want to grasp is that an estate was both farmer and sugar works. Okay. And, of course, sugar cane and rum and molasses were all agricultural, uh, agricultural products. We tend to think of rum as a manufactured product. But, you know, 150 years ago, it would have been very much perceived as an agricultural product. Mm-hmm. So all, uh, all of those so estates would have, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just every wanted... estate had a mill. Every ah. single estate had a mill. And one of the things that's also incredible, I was just discussing recently, in uh, this was particularly notable because we used wind. So we, we had over 500 windmills in the mid-1900s. And we were using windmills still as recently as the 1930s. And so if you look at the four square range, you will see a little windmill on it. And that's the, the, the uh, yeah, okay. that. 
So okay. Foursquare now was one of these estates, where, uh, became one of these uh, large estates, and then became what happened in the early 20th century. The industry was transformed. The sugar industry was transformed. Instead of 400 estates making sugar, mm-hmm. it became, oh goodness, by about 1930s or maybe about 25, maybe a bit more, <sighs> central factories. Sorry, no, there's still hundreds of estates. But instead of the estate grinding the cane, the estate sent the cane to a nearby estate, uh, okay. to a nearby factory. Oh, okay. So this is the thing that transformed the industry. And Foursquare became one of those. And Foursquare then was separated from Foursquare Estate, the sugar estate. So Foursquare Factory was this little oasis in Foursquare Estate okay. amongst the hundreds of acres of sugar cane. Okay. And so Foursquare spent most of its the 20th century as a central sugar factory. And just to pick up what we're really talking about, rum. So what happened is is there was a massive reduction in the number of estates making rum in the late 1900s in Barbados. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. And basically got consolidation. And you also had the advent of what the French call rum industrial. Mm-hmm. In other words... Grain whiskey in Scotland is, is, is whiskey industrial. Sure. So in other words, you have the advent of what we would recognize, because in, industrial in those days is not a pejorative term like we tend to think of it today. You had this, the, 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 the product of rum or whiskey moving from being an agricultural product mm-hmm. to being a manufactured product. And of course, what made this possible was the columns too. Columns still allowed you to make on a bigger scale. Oh, okay. And we saw this in Martinique, which is why you have the famous rum industrial Martinique, where these city-based distilleries popped up. Mm-hmm. We had the same thing here in Barbados. So estate, so rum moved from having dozens of little tiny estates where it was no longer profitable or sensible because you're paying things like still licenses and stuff like that. So in the late 1900s, we have this big reduction in a number of estates. There are many factors at play here. There's taxation, there's very poor economic time. Mm. There's a whole host of reasons why we had, we had the, the shrinkage of estates. One of the ma- one of the big reasons too is that we got a lot of money for our molasses. Barbara was very famous for its molasses. So, and at that time we weren't exporting rum. So therefore, if you were in an estate and you got more money for your molasses, well, guess what? You made molasses. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so at some point in the 19th century, we don't have a clear date when Foursquare stopped making rum. And as I say, it became a dedicated sugar factory. So it would make sugar and molasses. And then there's been big consolidate, a uh, big sort of loss. Well, it was sort of consolidation followed by loss mm-hmm. of sugar factories. First, it was consolidation through efficiency and things like that. So what was, I think, 25 central sugar factories in the 30s became 14 central factories in the 60s. By the 1980s, there were six left, Mm. uh, one of which was a new one. So so of the old ones, there were five left, one of which was Foursquare. Okay. And Foursquare then closed in 1988 as a sugar factory. So we went to what was a derelict property in 1994 and purchased it and refurbished it and brought it back to rum making, not sugar making, but Mm -hmm. brought it back to rum making. Uh, by 1996, we were back making rum again. So it probably hadn't made rum in 
at least 100 years. And Richard, yeah. who was the... I, I was reading online that there was a Sir David Seal who was leading Yes, that's that. my father. That's your father. father. That was my yes. question. Who, yes. who was David in this? Yes, yes. That was your father at that time. Yes. So if you look at the Ram RL seal, that's, that's from my great-grandfather. I'm with you. Yes. I'm with you. So he yeah, started was, it in the 1920s. And, and, and this is a very, uh, one of the things that I think is maybe not so appreciated is how small and humble these origins are. Because these merchant blenders were, well, I guess like any business, there were some big ones. Like Martin Dorley was actually quite a fairly prestigious one in 30s, 40s, 50s. And Ali Natha, which is another brand we own, is also very big in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. But there were many, many, many very, very small ones of which my family was one. And we're the only one that survived. And we ended up acquiring over the years, as they say, these other, other labels, well, okay. uh, which we keep alive. But we're the last of that family, from that Bridgestone Merchant Blending family. Wow. Yeah. All right. So you'd mentioned just a bit ago that, you know, Foursquare making rum again was probably the first time Foursquare had made rum in a bit over 100 years. Did you have any original rum to go back to to, to understand what the previous no, style was? No, no, no. So you had a, no. you had a so clean what, slate. So, so the other part of the story, which we can sort of explain to the Scotch whiskey audience quite easy, relatively, well, relatively easy, is so what happens is in Barbados is we embrace the, the column still. I mean, it's controversial, just like it is in, in Scotch whiskey 100 years ago. People <laughs> were, you know, that doesn't make rum, you know, it's, same, same fight, uh, same fight. But uh, as I like to s- explain to people, Jamaica was like Ireland. They refused to put the columns still in. Mm-hmm. And Barbados was a little more like Scotland, whereas, you know, we embraced it. And what emerged out of that was the blending tradition. Mm-hmm. And that was where the, the blenders would, you know, buy a little bit of uh, pot still rum from the estates, your equivalent of single malt. Mm-hmm. And quite a bit of uh, column rum, which is kind of your grain whiskey from the Bridgetown distilleries, mm-hmm. and um, and make your blends. So the modern style of Barbados rum, if you like, was created. So Foursquare would have been making kind of the historic Barbados rum, which have been a hundred percent pot still rum. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the things. I think one of the things that's, again, also not so appreciated is today we have this marvelous diversity in rum, but a lot of it took place in the 19th century, the late 19th century mm-hmm. diversity. So if you come to Barbados in the 1700s, you would not have found a huge difference in rum making techniques between, say, Barbados and Jamaica. Uh, we've been using dunder and, and you know juice and, and the, you know in other words just the same way you you not that not that they all tasted the same because of course you could go to two different parts of Scotland yeah. and find the same basic principles but making different products and that that's what I would that's what I would say you would see in other words you would go to Barbets and you'd see yes we're making a recipe and it's you know molasses juice dunder water and it's being double distilled in a pot still. Um, and then you go to Jamaica and you would see the same principles. Uh, what's happened in the 19th, in, in the modern era is that Jamaica has retained more of the 
historic principles in places like uh, Hamden, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, we don't use dunder. Yeah. Again, but also you can see the, the change also in Jamaica. So Ahleden doesn't use dunder and Worthy Park doesn't use dunder. So you can see that sort of... Um, Just for the benefit of our audience, could you explain dunder to us, please? Well, dunder is a bit like... The, the classic use of dunder is a little bit like sour mash in, in, in bourbon whiskey. It's where you take the residuals from the distillation. So yeah, so 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 Dunder was um, was uh, recycling the the bottoms from the fermenter from the 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 the, the, the still the pot still. You don't use Dunder at all in either your column no. or, or pot still no. No. rums now. What we do today would be best described as the modern Barbados style, and when I say modern, I'm talking about a hundred years old modern. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think one of the other things I love to point out, though, from the Scotch, especially with the Scotch whiskey audience, is that one of the things that we've seen in Scotch whiskey is, with, of course, with the advent of single malt, is the blended Scotch whiskey's kind of fallen away a little bit. Starting to, yeah. And one of the reasons with that is, is because too much of the grain whiskey is too industrial, it's too generic, it's mm. too. So one of the things with rum that's really great about rum is is that all of us who are making blended rums, all of us have our own individual column stills. So okay. so so that's why you see on the Foursquare labels the word single blended. Mm-hmm. The single has the same meaning as single malt. It's coming from a single distillery. And the blended has the same mm. meaning because it's a blend of pot and column still. But the beauty that we have is that we control both. So... Um, we're both a blender and distiller, as mm-hmm. in, but we control both elements. We're not a blender where we're buying one sort of little bit too generic element. Mm-hmm. So I have my own column still. Wang Gay has her own column still. Appleton has her own column still. St. Lucia has her own column still. Guyana has her own column still. And of course, in several some of these cases, they have more than one column mm-hmm. still. Uh, so we have... So I think blended rooms will continue to be very much at the forefront of rum because of this. I don't think we will get, that's not to say that there's not a powerful place for pure pot still rums, which of course is the kind of the, the straight equivalent of the single malt. Mm-hmm. But I think blended rums will, will continue to, to, we won't have as like a two tier like in Scotch whiskey. I think blended rums will continue to be a, a powerful representation of the, uh, okay. of the rum category. So, to frame this a bit more with with our listeners, so you you have so I, right now in my glass I have the two thousand four single blended rum, um, and it's right. pot pot and column blend. Yes, right. Jason's got the two thousand five in his glass now. Those that understand Scotch whiskey understand that double pot distilled single malt has a certain flavor profile. Column distilled grain whiskey has another flavor profile. And people understand you blend them together to create yet another flavor profile. Correct. But but the the bit that I think some of our listeners may not be so familiar with is the different bases that you have the availability to use, whether it's molasses or, or cane juice. And so I wonder if you can talk about what the different bases... Well, the cane juice is... Uh, right. So, yeah, the, the cane juice is 
is very recent, more, much more recent than the last couple of years. Oh, okay. But just just to put also, but that does lead to a very also a very important point in rum, mm-hmm. because one of the things that happens in rum, and I, I don't want to say it doesn't happen in, in American whiskey or, or, or in Scotch whiskey, but I think in rum it happens on a much greater scale. I think there's more diversity of output within rum distilleries. So, mm-hmm. so for example, you know, people will ask me, I mean, your name is Single Cast Nation. And the Single Cast Nation is based on the concept that the distillery kind of makes one product. Mm-hmm. And you pick the individual cast. When we make a product like 2005, there's no single cast that you can empty and out comes 2005. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there's no single cast that contains RLCL 10-year-old and out comes RLCL 10-year-old. Because every product is a component, every product is made up of a blend mm-hmm. of individual marks, and probably my best, maybe my best example of that is, um, you know, like Four Roses, they have like you know ten different products they make because they have four different yeasts and different and, mash bills, you know, four different yeah. bills, right? So what I'm saying to you is, this is very common in rum. Mm-hmm for a distillery to make many marks. And there's a good historical reason for that. Some, some of it's from the consolidation. So what happened is like historically you had individual distilleries making an individual uh, one product. Mm-hmm. But then when the distillery closed through consolidation, they kept selling that product, but that product was now made at another distillery. So they would give it the name of a mark. Sure. So what happens is is that we one of the things that happens in the world is that we make these individual components. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned juice, yes. So historically, we would have like what what you would call our mash bill. Or originally, rum was made from recipes, mm-hmm. and the recipes did include juice. And the recipes would actually change during the season, depending on the. Uh, I mean, because, for example, at the start of crop, you didn't have much molasses. You had more juice, so you made one uh, recipe. Okay. And then through the crop, you made a different recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brings me to another point that, that's one of the things that I think is very also very much misunderstood is that the idea that rum is made with this very harsh division that it either comes from molasses or it comes from juice. Yeah. Historically, this is not the case at all. Okay. The one that really separated out was agricole. So agricole in the late 19th century created this 100% juice product. But hitherto, formulas contained everything. And even to this day, when you think of some rum, like, for example, from Hamden, people think, oh, Hamden is Jamaica's molasses. There's actually juice in there. Hmm. And even and Appleton, as far as I know, also has some juice in some of their recipes. But we see them, we associate them as being 100% molasses. Just thinking of Jamaican rums, what's giving those rums that like heavy, well, maybe not heavy is not the word, but that funkier high ester style? Is that- I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to leave the Jamaicans mostly for that one. Because um, <laughs> you don't, that doesn't come yeah. through in your rums. So I didn't know no. if that's just a, a, a geographic difference. Correct. It, yeah, it, it's okay. a reflection of the style. Yeah. Okay. It, it's more of a cultural difference. So oh, it's a more of of how their recipes have evolved. As I say, they have some more of their traditional methods retained, and so how they present in their in their. It's a ba- it, it, kind of the baby. The best way I can explain it is that from the late nineteenth century through twentieth century, there's been a lot of evolution, and the evolution went in different directions, and their evolution 
went in the direction which retained certain of those characteristics, and whereas we went in a slightly different direction. But I'll leave them to be, to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as I say, the key point to grasp is is is, is the diversity, and the key, and I think too the, the the other part I like to also emphasize about the diversity is we tend to associate diversity very strongly with terror. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying terror is not a factor. What I would say is, is that for me, it's actually more interesting to understand that the diversity in rum, when you look at, let's take three very, very diverse rums, or take four very diverse rums, Cuba, mm-hmm. Martinique, Jamaica, Barbados. The explanation of that diversity is a social, cultural one. It's fascinating. It's really very, very deep okay. uh, as to how we got there. It's far more interesting than saying, well, you know, this one's soil has a little more whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, I mean, the history of rum is, uh, is just a, a remarkable history because it's so intertwined with global history and mm. huge economic movements. I mean, sure. uh, you know, why Barbados... Much of why Barbados is what it is today is influenced by the fact that we mostly sold rum to the American colonies, and after the American Revolution, um, we lost that market. Mm. <laughs> wow! So sorry that, that that came from mentioning <laughs> juice. Just to put in the picture, then with juice. So when we, as a merchant blending tradition, mm-hmm. refurbished Foursquare which we would call the estate tradition of making rum. It was a very fascinating marriage because it's this marriage of this merchant tradition with the estate tradition. Uh, so as they say, Foursquare history is much longer than us, and, and we synchronize in, in the 90s. However, of course, what we did initially is, is we did it, even though it was the estate tradition, we didn't really do it as the estate tradition in the sense that we simply bought in molasses. In other words, we were Foursquare Distillery, not Foursquare Estate. We weren't growing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we were, we were. Right? Aren't aren't you growing now? Well, okay. We were always growing, but not growing for rum. Yeah, okay. Um, Okay. So what I'm saying is, is that we refurbished in an estate, but we're kind of, Making it still, you might say, like a like a like a factory. Then not like a not like the we, we didn't re, 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 re reinstate the full estate tradition. I see. Because of course we didn't come from that tradition. So one of the motivations for doing the cane juice is to sort of resurrect that true estate tradition. And there's a couple, but there's a couple of factors at play. Let me explain. One is that I want to re-blur that line. <laughs> I want to stop uh, people saying, "Well, is this a molasses rum or this is a cane juice rum?" I want that line re re-blurred, wow. as it was for 300 years of rum making. Sure, that's uh, objective one. <laughs> Second objective is is that the the sugar industry in Barbados has been shrinking. It's been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And we've lived in fear, of course, of its closure. But Barbados went through a very, very bad economic time um, last couple of years. And there's really a serious threat to, to sort of, you know, that the sugar industry could go. Mm-hmm. And we could find ourselves in this absurd situation that, you know, famous Barbados 
home of rum, uh, home of several rum distilleries, and doesn't grow keen. Well, that's unacceptable. So the, the, the beautiful blowback of that is, you know, Matt Gay purchased uh, their estates uh, around their factory. Well, you might even say re- repurchase. So hmm. distillery and estate, much like Foursquare, distillery and estate have been separated. Now they're, they're, they're back together again. Uh, Nicholas <laughs> Abbey grows and crushes its own cane. And so we now from, well, what we did is from 2016, we would buy juice mm-hmm. from Nicholas. Then 20, so 2016, 2017, we bought juice from Nicholas. Okay. 2018, 19, and 20, we crush our own and buy from Nicholas. Did you uh, notice any difference? Uh, just out of curiosity in the, in the spirit. Oh, this is a separate rum. This is a, oh, it's yeah, a this is a separate okay. rum. Yeah, 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 yeah it's okay. a separate okay. rum. All right, got it. So the objective of reblurring that line and preserving sugarcane in Barbados. So in other words, the whole industry could collapse. And I can, you know, there's three people at least guaranteed will continue to grow sugarcane, mm-hmm. you know, Foursquare, Mountain Gay, and Nicholas Abbey. And it also then, as I say, preserves that estate tradition sure. from, you know, blade of sugarcane to bottle. We'll never be 100% that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, never say never, but <laughs> but that's extremely unlikely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nicholas is that, but of course, Nicholas is, is, is small. Nicholas is 100% their own cane. But, you know, we can dream. Um <laughs> But as I say, we will, we will preserve that that link. And obviously, some of the most elite rums in the future, 10, 15 years from now, will be rums where we say, you know, it literally came from, you know, that field or uh, mm. this kind of thing. Got know? it. Sure. What what kind of challenges do you face in growing sugarcane? Is the type of thing you put it in the ground and boom, you get a crop, or do you have to baby it along? Well. Right. Well, so far, what? So I'll 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 explain that one. What we've done there as well, just to be really clear. Larry and Nicholas is obviously all his land, his keen. I think he manages it completely. Again, I don't want to be careful and say anything wrong about my colleagues. And I, but in the case of Matt Gay, I think they have a management company comes and manages their cane, and they currently get the local sugar factory to process it. Larry crushes, I crush, and Mount Gay plan to crush. Uh, in our case, what we're doing is right now at the moment, just to be very clear, mm-hmm. we're using cane, well, we use Nicholas's uh, juice, but Larry crushes it for us. Then we get cane from an estate in the middle of the island, where it's one of the few estates still left at hand cut. So we're actually not doing the cane in the immediate four square area. But we have a few acres of cane now that we're going to cut next year that is right on four square property, which is you know literally next to the, the aging warehouse. But again, we have four square estate, which is separate to us, managing that. Basically, we're not doing something we don't know how to, how to do well. We're letting other people grow the cane. I mean, we know what you know, good-looking cane yep. looks like, and we can obviously know what good juice is. But I'm not at that point. It so it's a wonderful stages how we've grown. So what we did is we started first Nicholas supplying us. Mm-hmm. 
Then we started crushing cane from an estate suppliers. Next step is crushing cane on our land. Mm -hmm. And the step after that, which will probably be 2022, is we'll start to plant our, our varieties for rum. Nice. Because obviously everything that we are crushing is for sugar, which of course is which is how it's been done for 400 years. I mean, you know, the cane was always grown for sugar. Don't 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 let me uh, mis, mis, mislead on that one. But mm -hmm. sure, it would be nice. It, it it it's a curious phenomenon where we would um, literally look at a, a field and say, you know what, we're going to pick a variety, not because of its um, because it's qualities for making crystal sugar, but purely for its rum making qualities. Yeah, okay. I didn't even know that was on offer in sugarcane circles. Well, what used to happen before there was breeding, before there was breeding in really good control of varieties, what would happen is, is the, 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 the estates would know if a particular field was not good at giving sucrose. Because you can't get crystal sugar without sucrose. But if you had the simple sugar, so you might have a juice that was low in sucrose but still had fructose and glucose. Mm -hmm. So they would know, and they would call them rum canes. So they would know, hmm. you know what, that field is not crystallizing well. Uh, I'm going to divert that to rum. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So that, that did go on. Uh, but, of course, what we tend to live now in the era where the varieties are highly selected. So, for example, the varieties we use now tend to be, be driven by the fact that, you know, this mechanical harvesting, um, you know, the need for a certain level of fuel from the gas. There's, there are many other factors going into it. Mm. Whereas I'd like to grow a, a variety which just is purely, this makes a really beautiful tasting juice. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. Not that these are going to be massive differences, but it still it would be. Yeah. Um, so with, with with that in mind, right? Good quality juice to make good quality rum. There's a bit in the process that that I've always wondered about, and that's the fermentation process when it comes to making rum. What does that look like before you're putting the the fermented product into the still? What's that? Does that process differ from your understanding of, of malt whiskey production? Well, right. Well, in that part, in that, the process is probably more similar to brandy making than whiskey making because, of course, we have the sugars already. Yeah. So it's right. not like green mm. where we have to convert starches. <laughs> yep, sure. Sure. So it's much more akin. What I would say also, again, about rum, which is very notable, is we still have a high presence of natural fermentations. Oh. So, and again, rum was very late in converting, depending on the region, to added yeast fermentations. Because I think one of the things that gets a little bit lost in the conversation about added yeast is, you know, we're so... Well, all right, let's go back. One of the things, too, is, <laughs> is to understand, too, how yeast is perceived in different cultures. Okay. So one of the amusing things to me sometimes is you go to you know a bourbon distillery and you ask about the yeast and, and you know the bourbon distillery will tell you well the yeast is you know absolutely critical mm -hmm. and it's maybe not so much today but you know once upon a time you went to a Scotch whiskey distillery and you asked about the yeast and it's like yeast uh, who cares about the yeast mm -hmm. and yep. people would find this very very confusing and 
it's really to understand it's about culture. Neither one is wrong. If you're a bourbon distiller and, you know, there's a certain limitation on your mash bill, there's very big limitation on the wood you can use. Mm-hmm. Your culture doesn't age for huge amounts of, of time. You have, you know, very specific type of distillation. Telling a bourbon distiller you can use different yeast strains is like magic. But you go over to Scotch whiskey and, you know, he's got his pot still, which, and pot stills have a lot more flexibility in them than a specific column still. Maybe, oh, that's not misunderstood. You can build column stills to do, a, you know, obviously a, a myriad of things, but each specific configuration is not a lot of flexibility, whereas a pot still, you have loads of flexibility. And then, of course, if you're a Scotch whiskey distiller, and you can use all these refilled casks and sherry casks and 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 reuse casks and, and you have all these things. So suddenly yeast just it's not that big a deal. Hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. a way and as I say, so it's 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 to appreciate the culture behind things. And we're a little bit like that in rum with Scotch whiskey. We're a little bit, you know, don't get too obsessed about the yeast, although I think it's become very trendy in marketing to say everyone has a sure. we have a very select special yeast. But I think one of the things that's lost in adding yeast is that in you know the last you know yeast was sort of first well, I think Fleischmann's late nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and then it became a big deal in brewing, and then eventually. I think one of the, as you see, one of the things that is lost is that when you add yeast, you're doing it to for efficiency first and foremost, sure, and control. Yeah. So within the umbrella of efficiency and control, you might pick different strains. But truly, if you were did not have to add, were throwing out efficiency and control, mm-hmm. you would do do natural fermentation. And natural fermentations are still very prevalent, and we do natural fermentations oh, you do? as well. Oh, okay. as that. Yes. And that gives you a range uh, that you simply cannot get from any single added yeast strain. Um, sure. But you have to understand the context. Yeah. If you have a, you know, a, a 20 cubic meter fermenter, and it takes three days... And you instead want to do a natural fermentation that takes three weeks. Well, yeah. uh, you've just cut your capacity down by about what ninety yeah, percent. Exactly. Um, exactly. So uh, there's the reason why added yeast is popular. Bang, okay. that's it. Yeah. So I think, I think you know, because added yeast and people selecting flavors with added yeast, we we still forget that. All of that's done on an umbrella mm. of massive constraint because you're only going to be that yeast strain is going to be the dominant strain. It's going to kill every other yeast strain in there. Sure, it's going to be a, a super yeast strain. And when yeast was sort of really first the great fascination, and I'm talking shortly after it was first, you know, strains were isolated and things like that. So I'm talking early part of the 20th century. There was a lot of work in, in this, and it was in, in and there was some papers published in Jamaica Run. Hmm. And, you know, the Jamaicans more or less said, you know, the yeast wasn't that important. It was really the bacteria that drove the flavor. It was really the secondary fermentation. Wow. Okay. 
okay. uh, that that were responsible for the primary driver of flavor. Yeah. I, earlier on, you, you you threw doubt on the word terroir. Not maybe not doubt, but you thought that terroir doesn't necessarily apply too much. Um, to whiskey, it's more cultural differences. Well, cultural can can wipe it out. I mean, it all depends what you want mm-hmm. to how you that the culture driven. But maybe one of the best ways I could probably explain it is is you could literally send to Jamaica, you know, send a good old worthy park a tank of molasses. Mm-hmm. Send me a tank of molasses, <laughs> the same molasses, and let's say it comes from you know Guyana. And I guarantee you their rum will come out Jamaican and my rum will come out Barbados. Now, mm-hmm. do you think that that is potentially because you're you're doing, you know, uh, you're not pitching it's yeast? It's because there's so much. It's because a little bit because part of that factor is yeah. a little bit because molasses is fairly homogenous. What okay. I mean is there's not a world apart between a Guyana molasses, a Jamaican molasses, and mm-hmm. a Barbados molasses. And there's very good technical reasons for that. We're all growing similar varieties of cane. We're all using similar uh, equipment at the sugar factories. So big part of that is, yes, uh, that, that the raw material is not, not wide apart. Mm-hmm. But it's also a reflection of the fact that so much comes after Yeah, that that difference gets smothered out by other things that make the difference, that make you go... This is Jamaican rum when you taste it. This is a barbarous rum when you taste it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. not to that say because you sense. can go to, you can go, for example, at, at Gregory Nissan, uh, Gregory Vernon at Nissan, and he's literally growing, um, you know, he'll distill different fields separately. Now, when he puts his product out, he blends it. But <laughs> he know he has, because that's the culture there. Yeah. Um, so I think sometimes a lot of a lot of things in spirit making we get very hung up on, you know, what's right or wrong or what's better, and it's really, as I say, a different culture, and you need to understand the interpretation. That's why I say you could go to Kentucky distiller and he'll have one opinion on yeast and mm-hmm. you go to Scotch whiskey distiller and he'll have another opinion on yeast and they're both correct. <laughs> yeah. Even though they yeah, sound yeah. like they're completely opposite. And <laughs> so sometimes I might say something and you go to a Jamaican distiller and he doesn't understand what the hell I just said. <laughs> and it's not that we're both, that we're opposed to each other. It's just, it's it's the cultural uh, emphasis and interpretation and, and and things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think you make a solid case for that, Richard. I I like the way you've described it. Um, a quick question on casks for you here. Um, you know, I'm led to believe you're using American white oak ex bourbon. Yes. Again, we've been talking through this conversation about history and and even culture. What would rum have gone into? Like pre-relationship with American distillers. So we, we we know that we know this we know this pretty well um, because of course uh, the estates many estates did keep good records mm-hmm. and we know this because also the because of the the trading relationship. So one of the things that happened was is that 
in particularly in Barbados, a little less so in in somewhere like Jamaica because it's a lot larger. Barbados is a tremendous monoculture, and so we were you know on sugarcane and more or less everything else was imported. And one of the things that happened in Barbados, Barbados was for, you know when they first landed, it was completely covered in trees, and within a very short space of time, uh, they cut every single tree down. Because oh, wow. sugarcane was so valuable, and of course they needed the wood to to to, to uh, build homes, etc., yeah. etc. Yep. But so one of the things that happened very very quickly is we would trade wood from North America. So it come uh, from okay. Canada, it come from northeast of of US, and so you know, um, and you can see the ads in the old papers. It was, you know, shipment arrived, Quebec staves. Um, you know, and so they do white oak and red oak, and they would build the 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 cast, and the puncheons were built for everything. It was built for sugar, was built for molasses, was built for rum. I mean, of course, back in those days, everything came in in in, in wood. You know, dried fish came in in wood. Sure. Everything came in, in in wood. Sure. But but the staves came in, and every plantation had a cooperage, um, and the staves came in, and you'd build them up to 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 do sugar, uh, molasses, and rum. Eventually, mm -hmm. sugar went into bags. Mm -hmm. And then, eventually, molasses went to bulk shipments. So we, we actually used to have a cooperage in Bridgetown, mm -hmm. and they were building mainly for molasses, but they'd also build for rum. So rum has this long history mm -hmm. using oak. I'm not exactly clear, but I, my suspicion is, is that we started to do ex-bourbon once we no longer coopered uh, molasses casks, so we had to bring in, and we used to bring them in shooked, you know, in, by staves, they would knock down yeah, and, sure. and mm -hmm. rebuild them. So switching to American oak was very natural for us. So in the days when we were, uh, like even up to about 1950s, we would be bringing in large amounts of Canadian oak staves hmm. to make these molasses punches and these rum punches. But then the other thing that we did, which of course is totally akin to Scotch whiskey is, of course, we use refill casks. Mm -hmm. So right. we have this long history of using sherry casks and Madeira casks. And, and actually, Madeira is particular because in, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, the ships, the English ships would stop in Madeira, mm -hmm. pick up the lovely Madeira wine. And they stop in Madeira because it was a, a good stopping point over the New World. And it was Portuguese, so it was friendly to the English. Mm-hmm. If it had been Spanish or French, there would be no no Madeira wine in Barbados. <laughs> and Madeira was hugely popular. It was the dominant drink. In other words, because mm -hmm. the, the, the planters were uh, uh, fabulously wealthy, and they were fabulously wealthy Englishmen, let me make that clear, not Barbadian. Uh, but they, so they could import the best of everything, and they, they you know, you know, you can see some old ads in the, 18th century, you know, wine trade, wine merchants, and the, and then Madeira would be the headline, you know, newly arrived Madeira, and then there'd be like a subline. We also sell brandy, rum, blah 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 blah. blah. But Madeira was the was, that the, was it. the choice. It was yes. king. Yeah. So you know, I don't I don't have a specific record. Of, oh, we refill this Madeira cask with rum, yeah. but it's the same culture of Scotch whiskey. You know, why does Scotch whiskey use sherry cask? Well, why? Because the sherry went over in bulk. And the sherry cast. And that, again, also brings me to another point about culture. You know, sometimes I have fans of the, the, the rum in, in America. And they will tell me, you know, uh, I don't want any of those wine finished ones you do. 
which of course we don't do any wine finished wines. You know, I just want the bourbon cast. And you have to understand this is a cultural thing because if you're an American spirit maker, mm-hmm. new wood is part of your culture. Why? Because you have trees. <laughs> Scotch whiskey, <laughs> you know, brandy, new wood is part of your culture. Why? Because you have trees. Those lovely oak forests that were built for the for the French Navy, that by the time the oak trees were mature, uh, there was the, the ships were being built out of steel. So their culture is about new wood, whereas Scotch whiskey culture and rum culture is about refilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we don't. Well, we you know we'd import the staves, but but that's it. It was an expensive imported thing. So you you. You brought in some Madeira, you damn well reused that cask. <laughs> yep. And that's why something like Scotch whiskey, you know, with all its restrictions, but you have all this rum finished rum finished whiskey. Why? Because we were exporting tons and tons of rum. And guess what they did with the casks when they got them? They refilled yep. them with whiskey. But it's a very interesting cultural thing because so when you give a bourbon guy and you tell a bourbon guy, oh, I finished your bourbon in, you know, some wine cask. That's foreign. That's I agree with him. Yeah. But you can't equally take a, a Scotch whiskey, which has now been aged in a very sherry cask, and say, well, that's not authentic. That's authentic. Yeah. Yep. One hundred percent. That's part and part of the culture of Scotch whiskey to use a sherry cask or an old port cask. And those those flavors are authentic. But I agree with my bourbon friends who go, hang on a minute, I don't know. Don't give me no Sauterns cash finished <laughs> bourbon. I'm with you. You know, even though I have Sauterns cast, but because I'm yeah. coming from a different culture. Yeah. Given that you're looking at, at flavor profiles for then the blending of, of Foursquare, are you are you putting your, your pot distillate into one style of cask, your column distillate into another style of cask, knowing that you want to get a profile? No, so so one, so one of the things that happens is a, a number of the, the blended producers do age their pot and column separately. And, and that's really because, you know, historically because the column came later. So if you were, by the time you put in column, you put the column in separately, you didn't interfere with your, your pot still aged mm. spirit. But what we did, starting from about 2002, we do pre-blending. So, Got it. Yeah. So we no longer put down, with very rare exception, 100% column spirit or 100% pot still spirit. And in terms of 100% column spirit, I don't know the last time we ever did that. Huh. But we do have a, a, a few smatterings of... Hundred percent pot still spirit knocking around. Do, do, um, hmm. do you have so a yes? S- so we so that's part and part of creating certain elements. Hmm. So a mark would be a would be you know a certain you know pre blend of a certain individual components in a certain cask. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. So the simple answer to your question is sort of yes, as in you know. Different casts do get different uh, different elements, but everything, as you say, ninety nine percent of what we do is pre blending. So, so to potentially make the this the simple answer to his question a little less simple, do you have a, a fixed 
ratio of column to pot still blend before you put it into cask or do you oh no 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 yeah. no that, that that varies yeah that, that does varies. vary so so when you look at a product there like you have there 2004 or 2005 yeah if you ask me what the pot and column ratio is i couldn't tell you without going to an excel spreadsheet yeah sure and recalculating it so i mean obviously i have a ballpark idea but i'd actually have to do that because it's a blend, mm-hmm. and in that blend, or I mean, they're all bourbon cash in that blend. But in that blend are some first fill ex bourbon, second fill ex bourbon, third fill ex bourbon. Okay. And these are all different components, and within those different rums, there are different ratios. Of uh, okay. one of the things I I could I would I would point out is sometimes when I say pre blend, people might think I sort do a full rainbow. No, we either tend to do very pot still dominant or very column still dominant oh, pre blends. Yeah, you know, we don't do this lovely sort of rainbow of everything from, you know, 90, 10 to 10, 90. No, it's yeah. either. Yeah. Um, another word, let me put it this way. I do not have a single 50-50 blend out there. But, of course, I could create a 50-50 blend by the blends. So I can take my heavy in it. You know, uh, so, in other words, I can create at the end the rainbow of products if desired but no the the, the blends are either predominantly pot or predominantly okay common. okay um, and that's actually kind of a historical legacy because that's just an evolution because what you've really done is is i've replaced my 100 percent column historically column products with with column dominant products and i replaced my historically pot 100 percent with pot dominant products got it huh so uh, I, we've we've got some questions that came in from some of our listeners. I did have one question before before I brought those on, and it brings us back a little bit to some of the history you talked about, where you opening up the distillery in in the '90s, first time rum is being made, you know, at Foursquare in a hundred years. You didn't have the the original liquid to go back to. So you started with a clean slate. I'm curious, what inspired you to go after the particular flavors that that you're trying to produce from the juice, from the fermentation, from the distillation to the maturation? Was there an inspiration there for you? Yeah. One of the things that's I think, guided us, and and it's a very important part of it, is when we do the different rums we do, and we love doing you know, different rums mm. in the sense of a criterion taste different to a Dominus or a triptych taste different to Principia. It's very important to me that you see them all as Barbados rum. It's very important to me that you see them all as Foursquare rum. Of course, we didn't know what Foursquare rum necessarily be in 96. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was, I, I grew up in, obviously, in rum. And so we had a very, we. It, it's the same way, like, you know, why does, you know, Worthy Park also resurrected their distillery for the first time in, in you know, what was it, 40 or 50 years. Hmm. They did actually have a little tiny, they do actually have a little tiny liquid left. But it's no accident that they end up making Jamaican rum. And it's no accident that I end up making Brothers rum because that's your heritage, that's the experience of the team, the blenders that, you know, um, work with us. And, you know, that's kind of what we know. It's the only thing we kind of would know how to make right or know that it was wrong. And then 
there's no question as well that yeah this is where a lot of personal preference comes in yeah i remember i i tell this story sometimes it's a funny story i remember being visited by one of the team of a very very large and very very successful wine experience company and their brands they're not high-end brands they're you know volume and the guy looked at me and said um we do our focus groups and we find out exactly what the consumer wants and that's what we make. And I promise you without missing a beat, I said, we do the opposite. We make the rum we like and try to find someone out there that likes it. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and within a, a certain amount of commercial reality, that, that's largely true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and Luca, Valerie, you know, he would always say the same thing to me. You know, he would sort of say, you know, all the different rums he does, you know, I can see the personality of the maker, you know. Hmm. And there's a lot of truth to that. And, and again, it comes back to my, my point about culture, you know. I think Jamaica rum reflects Jamaica culture. I think Barbados rum reflects Barbados culture. I think Foursquare rum re reflects the people in Foursquare. And, yeah, it's about what we like. And it's about what I like. I love a rum that's very well balanced. Mm -hmm. I don't really got anything against a rum that's very dominant in a particular flavor. You know, that, that, that's, that in itself is, is worthy of, of, of admiration. Mm -hmm. But it, it just, for me, I just prefer a little more balanced rum. I also love very soft rums. You know, when I'm drinking wine, I prefer Burgundy over Bordeaux. Why? Soft. Yeah, I sure. just have a, a, a love for... Parts are very mm. soft. And this is one of the reasons why the Foursquare cast strength have been so successful. Mm -hmm. Because I make this big emphasis on, on making the rooms very, very soft. And of course, yeah. if you do that, well, guess when that's going to shine? That's going to shine in the cast strength one. Of course. Much more than the 40% one. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, so the fact that this we, 2005 is 59%, and I've just been sitting here sipping on it for an hour talking to you, <laughs> it goes down very very easily Richard. because that's the thing whenever you're making anything in spirits space there's always compromise and uh, there's always choosing mm -hmm. and you know you can have a rum that's you know maybe a little more pungent or a little more estuary or whatever but then you're going to pay a little more price in acidity you're going to pay a little more price in sharp mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. no free lunches you know everything is a is a trade-off and so you see in the culture of a distillery where the where we like those trade-offs. And, you know, there are other people, you know, I'm not a fan of peated whiskey. <laughs> uh, but there are other people. We'll who, forgive you. There are other people who want, you know, who love peated whiskey. There are people who want a rum to slap them in the face. I mm -hmm. don't want a rum to slap you in the face. Yeah, there's um, so many people, and I think it's a, a lot of peat lovers, when they transition over to rum, they, they find this their happy place is in a Coroni rum, and that's not my happy place. It's just... No. It's too big, no. too harsh, too rubbery, and... There are elements of the Caroni that I can really admire, especially okay. the maturity with the really old ones. Yeah. But no, you're never, ever going to get me to appreciate burnt rubber. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, burnt rubber... Uh, I Burnt rubber is such a nemesis for me, another, because the thing about molasses fermentation is they produce a lot of sulfur. And... Mm. You know, I sort of spent my whole life as sulfur as being enemy number one. That's that's my, you know, hmm. 
If I'm Batman, that's Penguin. Um, <laughs> so, so when I get when I get a Karenie, I mean, honestly, some of them, I I will feel physically ill because I'm uh, agreed because I've spent so much time being sensitive to this mm. that it's too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But there are people who like Scotch whiskey out of those um, out of those uh, worm tubes, and they're all meaty and sulfury. I can't. No, I, I hate it. <laughs> so again, that's where the culture comes in. So I have enormous amounts of copper. Yeah. Okay. So that reflects okay. my culture. Okay. If you step into a single malt that's been aged for a long time in a in a heavy sherry that might be a little sulfured, do you have the same adverse reaction? It depends. To, to, mm, there are some, okay. and I think it's more a case if if the sherry, because some of the sherry casts they have the sulfur. I think more from the from the wine, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the ones that have it from the the treatment of the cast. The treatment of the cast for me is a problem. Yeah. From the wine, mm-hmm. no, not so much. I'm with you. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yep. It can be a little bit, can be actually a nice, nice part of the flavor in the sherry. Can be yep. part of it. Yep. A little way like yeah, a, we've a been... sulfur can be a little bit part of the flavor in a beer. Um, mm-hmm. But when you have, well, in the, of course, you know, the thing about sulfur is it manifests itself in so many different ways and more or less they all smell bad. Um, so you have, you know, the, you know, you have the kind of the chivy sulfur, you have the kind of meaty sulfur, the wet dog sulfur, you have the burnt match sulfur, you have the burnt tire mm-hmm. sulfur. Probably the burnt tire is the worst one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like a little spent match from 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 time to time. I, I don't mind that. That is more, I think, a cask one. Yeah, I think that's the yeah, cask one. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the one where it's in, in the in the treatment of the wine, I think it's more. I mean, I'm, I'm not a winemaker, so I'm guessing here, but I think that's more of a kind of a sweety, fruity taste. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, yeah, good. And some people, and as I say, some people absolutely love it. <laughs> and I'm like, just just keep it in balance. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the key. That's what I say. You know, a lot of you know, I do love that something is balanced. So. You know, I might like a particular flavor, but if it's too heavy, then it's... I mean, one of the, the best um, compliments I get on our rums, it's a little bit like what you pointed there, is people will say to me, they buy a bottle of, you know, like Princip here or whatever, and they say, you know, we bring it out and we sink it. <laughs> we keep drinking it. And they'll say to me, you know, I love this other rum from these, you know, you, you know, I, I love the flavor of this other brand, but after two or three glasses, I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, but your rum, and they'll be like, you know, sort of, you know, accusing me, but your rum, we, we have to drink, we, we, ne- we don't stop. And, and that for me is, is, a, is a reflection of balance. I think that's what, yeah. yeah. Did it, how long did it take you from, from 1996 to the popularity of, of where Foursquare is now. And, and I'm using this from, from an American perspective. I would say maybe four to five years ago, all of a sudden, within various bourbon circles and, and other types of whiskey circles, you had people saying, oh my God, have you tried this Foursquare stuff? And, and now people simply cannot get enough of that. Is that something that you've experienced throughout the years, or is this a new phenomenon just in the U.S. alone, or are you just seeing this explosion 
globally. For well, you. like most most overnight successes, like most overnight successes, it took about twenty years. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's a question of phases. So, yeah. so we are always very strong in Barbados, and, and you know, big, which is you know why we were able to take the steps we were able to take. And so we're always, a, as they say, the last of the the families who are very very strong in Barbados, very respected in Barbados, but. When I created uh, Dorley's XO, we started to export for the first time. And, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, what's your favorite rum or whatever? And I say, well, I don't have a favorite, but I'll say, I always say that Dorley's XO has a little special place in my heart mm-hmm. because I think it was the first rum which kind of put us on the map that kind of went, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Foursquare, they're, they're good producers because mm-hmm. of Dorley's XO. In other words, we've got the, mm-hmm. the respect and the, you know, the necessity to say, you know, and it was, you know, it's not... It, 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 it's not like super expensive rum. It's like um, twenty-five uh, bucks or whatever, and you know, so they didn't necessarily you know go as nuts about it as they you know they do about two thousand and five. But mm-hmm. but the point is, it was like, yeah, this is very good rum, and, and and then I think that really helped us a lot. And then the next thing that really I think kicked off rum's renaissance was the beginning of the London Rum Fest in two thousand and seven. So I would say that we have done very well on the European side. And yes, we had this kind of sort of vacuum in the US <laughs> where we weren't really known at all. And it's just kind of ironic the way it's worked out because the US is the Europe has been a very steady step by step, you know, as yeah. you say, Doris XO, they, they do Rum Fest, so people get noticed more at Rum Fest, we eventually launched Doris 12. Very, very slowly, step by step, and then eventually Foursquare in 1998, which was the US only. And so that's a kind of a normal progress. And then we sort of jumped over, yes, to the Atlantic, and it's been quite, a, it's been quite sort of spectacular. Yeah. Um, hmm. But one couldn't happen without the other. So, mm-hmm. so while it sounds like it's an overnight thing in the US, it, it, if we didn't have that 20 years of hard work in Europe, it simply wouldn't Of course. Yeah, of oh, course. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I, I'm curious, Richard, I, I've heard Foursquare described as both the Port Ellen of rum and the Pappy of rum. <laughs> how, how do you respond to those statements? Well, to be honest with you, I don't really think about it a lot because I don't know. I can't say being that I'm not. I don't know how people who say that perceive poor Ellen or Pappy. So I can't really. I just smile and hope that it means a compliment and um, and press on from there, you know, because um, it's very hard for me to 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 really, um, you know know exactly what I mean but usually as they say people people say it with 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 they intend it as a compliment so and, exactly. and, and that and that's exactly. all that really matters so um good but good. but I have no should, I, should, I have no comment as to the legitimacy of <laughs> of, of the claim at all <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, here we better get these Facebook questions in or we're going to run out of time okay. here. Okay. Okay. Tom Hankins said, is someone obsessed with plants and rum slash rum with the H in there? Uh, I would love to know more about um, their work growing their own cane and how soon we might expect even an unaged expression from that distillate. Hmm. It's very, very unlikely that we would release a pure 
can just well, I, I, you know, I was never say never, but that's not the mission. The mission is not uh, is not about producing agricultural rum. Um, we are very um, cognizant about the fact that agricultural rum is a protected identity. Um, sure. It's much more than sugar cane juice. One of the things that we find very frustrating and, and quite frankly very disrespectful is the idea that someone can just distill something from sugar cane juice and then call themselves an agricole, something that's so, you know, based on a hundred years of, of hard work and, and reputation. So I can, I can guarantee you that you will not see the word agricole on any label from, from us. Um, would you think that, would you view that as cultural appropriation? Uh, no, I just basic stealing of intellectual property. Oh, I see. Okay. Because <laughs> you, you talked more. about Jamaica. You said, you know what? They have their style. I don't want to talk about that. That's their culture. I, I didn't know if some of this was in honoring of others, um, own culture or, and I can see a little bit. Here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm very close with my, my Jamaican colleagues. Obviously we have Probitas, which is a, a collaboration with Hanman. So, you know, I'm super close with Hamden and Worthy Park, and mm. and, and I know Hamden's um, obviously a big organization, so I know know everyone there. But I mean, I'm I'm, I'm pretty good friends with Joy, so you know, I I know the Jamaicans very unlikely to be upset with anything I say because they know how highly I think of them. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, it's it's it, you have to defer, you know. Get Zan on, or Christelle on, or Joy on, and, and let them <laughs> regale you with tales of Jamaican funk and Esther. Oh yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, but yeah, no, we're we're we the 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 the, the great thing about the rum community is very close, and you know a big part of that is because we we do see ourselves as as all aspiring to to lift rum. And, you know, sometimes I, I always joke with them. I say, when we hate each other, we know we've cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have this tremendous, uh, very great, you know, close list. And it's because, yeah, we, we're all fighting the, the good fight. Um, so that's why, yeah, I mean, my agricultural friends, I, there's no way I, I want to be seen as, as stepping on their turf whatsoever. Mm, yeah. That makes good yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. We got a... Okay, who's next? Uh, well, a series of questions from Travis Self, but I'm going to try to choose just one of them. And I want to make sure he has a word in here that I'm not familiar with, but maybe it's a word that is a bit more specific to rum production. So I'm going to say the word. And if you don't okay. understand it, Richard, then okay. we're all in trouble. Okay. Right. <laughs> he says, do you ever charge your, and here's the word, retorts? Yeah, I know that word. Okay, so do you ever Whoa. you ever charge okay. your retorts with rum wash so that the distillate passes through lower ABV wash or any heads or tails, or do the retorts charge themselves as the distillation progresses? I don't understand the question, so if you could explain the question. Well, it was one part that we didn't touch on. <laughs> okay, which is unusual for me because one of the other things I love to tell my Scotch whiskey audience is how superior our distillation system. <laughs> yeah. um, because be of course, our guest, Richard. Because of course, in Scotch whiskey, you use the, you use the classic um, double distillation. 
spirits, the wash still and spirit still. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the West Indies, we use the vastly superior double retort system. <laughs> and so what will happen is, is we do the distillation in one go. Mm -hmm. So we fill the pot. I say that, but people have the beauty of the double retort system. You can do many different things. You can work the double retort system as a normal classic Scotch whiskey double distillation, and some people do it that way. And then usually in that case, the retorts are not charged. The retorts just aid you in function as additional copper surface, additional mm. reflux surface, and you can do a classic double distillation. So the pot is connected to two retorts. So the dist so what happens is you fill the pot with, with, with wash in a normal way, and the distillate goes in and condenses into retort number one, where it's then redistilled and condenses back into pot retort number two, where it's then redistilled and heads then to your final condenser. So you have to imagine instead of the normal whiskey still where you have pot and condenser, we have two little vessels in the middle. Huh. So that question is asking what do we charge? Because there are people who do, do different things. Yeah. We do, I would say, the fairly classic routine of charging with what we call high wines and low wines. And what that really is... So we take four fractions, which again is more similar to brandy than Scotch whiskey. So we will take when we're making our run, which is in one go, because not double, not double distillation, because we do the, we basically, you might you might technically call it three distillations in mm -hmm. one go. We will take heads, heart, high wines, low wines, so that our tails is split. Okay. So mm -hmm. instead of that tails being recycled into the spirit still of scotch whiskey that is placed into the retorts and the split is kept by putting the low tails the the the, the low wines so the, the the later tails in retort one and what we call high wines in re, in in retort uh two so that's what we charge so no we don't put wash we put we put basically what would be the equivalent of Scotch whiskey tails. Oh. We call it high wines and low wines. Yeah. Okay. It's a little bit physically more akin to Irish whiskey distillation, Irish triple distillation whiskey, but again, it's done in one pot. But the the principle is more similar to that than Scotch whiskey, because of course in okay. in Irish whiskey, if I remember rightly, you do a wash run, and you split that. And you take the second split, do a distillation on that, and take the first bit of that and the first bit of your other one, and they go into the spirit still. Yeah, right that's me. my and understanding that's as kind well. of, yeah. And that's kind of conceptually what's happening in the double retort. Okay. Because we're making sure that bottom half of the wash run is kept separate. So that, so that when you do a spirit run in the Scotch in Irish whiskey, you've taken out that bottom half from the wash run, mm. and with us by keeping it in retort one, we're not f fully separating it, but mostly separating it uh, from the from ending up in the in the heart, um. which is kind of the genius of it because you get you can still get some of the best bits of it without getting the worst bits of it. And so part of yeah. what, what makes Irish whiskey what it makes is, is that separation in the first run. But, of course, then there's no opportunity to get anything from that second half cut. Whereas in the rum system, it's still in retort one. So there's still an opportunity to get uh, to get something out of it. Wow. 
This is this has been fantastic. Yeah, great question. The double retort rum system is absolutely sheer genius. That is fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for I'm willing that. to believe you. Yeah. Jeez, and 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 it's so and it's so sad for me because there's a kind of a common feeling that you know in the Caribbean we're not so high tech and you know and really the irony is is that we have the best distillation batch distillation system of all the major spirits so you go to brand you know you go to 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 to, to france you go to, to scotland and you see the elementary double distillation system which of course is a, mm-hmm. a, an improvement on the single distillation system mm-hmm. but you come to the caribbean and you see some very very clever devices which are based on either double systems plus plates or over the years, there have been many configurations. In fact, that's the thing with the Caribbean, there's many different configurations. And there's some very good historical reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Even though by the 19th century, we would have them made in England when there were famous places, I think it was a famous place in Bristol that made still. We definitely had a tremendous influence on the design of stills. And my feeling why that happened is is because a lot of still making took place in the islands as well. Hmm. Whereas, you know, by the time Column Stills came around, and these are very, you know, industrial things. So, you know, we, we literally bought a coffee still off the shelf. I do think in the Caribbean, and of course in the early, late nineteenth, late 18th century, early 19th century, you know, this industrial revolution, people are really experimenting and, and, and doing different things. I do think we had much more say as to the design than obviously buying off a shelf. I mean, even now to this day, I mean, I have a second pot still coming. And, you know, it's not like buying a column still where you're tending to buy someone else's engineering. You're doing really your own thing. And I think because stills were built in the islands in the 1600s, 1700s, and it was huge. I mean, the British island sugar industry made a whole copper industry in Bristol hmm. because they would be shipping all this copper out to the islands to be manufactured into the copper pots for the sugar and the, and this so I think we had this big impact on the design which is why you go to the Caribbean and you see this double retort system and it's not like anything you've ever seen anywhere else in the world yeah. hmm. that's fantastic yeah. thanks to Travis that's great fun. question I'm going to do some additional research uh, on retorts. Uh, so the next one is from Richard Plutzer. And he says, would you mind asking Richard if he thinks rum will have a consensus on production methods and aging across the category? And does he want, if, if you want it, why? And if you don't want that consensus, why would you not? No, there's there's no consensus. There's no consensus of whiskey either. Um, different cultures have uh, uh, different things. That's a really good point. One of the things that does happen is there are elements that are considered, um, if you might say, above the fray. And let me give you an example, which will explain what I mean. So, age statements. The EU has a rule on age statements. The TTB has a rule on age statements. It's got nothing to do with the product. There's no subcategory or whatever. Age statement means the youngest. End of story. So you could have a culture that, you know, says average or whatever you want, 
but the you know the European market and the and the American market have decided that anything other than that is going to be you know terribly misleading and you know too bad. But the idea that you're going to have a consensus on rum is ridiculous. You don't have a consensus on whiskey. You know, you have bourbon whiskey says it has to be in a brand new cask, and Scotch whiskey allows a refill. And bourbon whiskey is bourbon from a time what? It's how much? How old? Six months? Remind me. Oh, jeez, Bur- bourbon can just kiss wood for a second, and and you right. can call it bourbon. And Scotch whiskey is free, so you'll never have a consensus, and that's fine. What has to happen is you have to have what we where where rum suffers. There's always an you know there's always an element of truth in some of these myths. So you have this myth sort of rum has no rules. Well, you know, or the different countries have these different. It's it's quite amusing. The different countries have these different rules. Well, that doesn't matter in the U in the U.S. or Europe because there's only one rule that applies. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's the problem. So you're very well aware when you pick up a bottle of bourbon. Whether you pick up a bottle of bourbon in America or you pick up a bottle of bourbon in Europe, you're well aware when you pick up a bottle of Scotch whiskey whether that bottle is bought in America or Europe, that they are following their respective rules. The problem is is that you can go and buy a bottle of Jamaica rum in Jamaica and be fairly confident in its Jamaican standards. But as you step foot in the U.S., you can pick up a bottle of rum that says Jamaican rum and it does not meet the standards of Jamaica. You can pick up a bottle of rum in the U.S. that says Agricole, and it need not even come from cane juice, far less being <laughs> legit Agricole. And that's the problem. The, the problem, which is often mischaracterized, that you know rum has no rules and or rum needs more regulation, all that's completely nonsense. What we need is more recognition. I mean, you couldn't get... It, 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 Scotch whiskey is no different, or whiskey, I should say, is no different. You have a myriad of standards um, uh, with whiskey, and some of them are so egregious that you don't allow them to be sold at all. So Mm. I cannot take Indian whiskey that is made from flavored ethanol and sell it in Europe or America. Unfortunately, I can take an Indian rum that is made from flavored ethanol and not only sell it in Europe or America, but claim it to be premium. This is where the problem is. Mm-hmm. So you're protected in whiskey, first of all, by having things that don't meet the most elementary standards or sure. ones that you choose not to recognize. So so America, you choose to recognize Scotch whiskey, even though it doesn't use new wood, because obviously Scotch whiskey is a you know highly respected category. But you choose to rightly say, listen, no, I'm sorry, that Indian whiskey... If we if we allow that, that's misleadingly labeled as whiskey, and so you don't allow it. But rum, you don't give us the same deference. So you allow, you know, Jamaican rum to be sold in uh, America with you know with added sugar, or you allow a Philippine rum made from flavored ethanol to be sold as rum. Yeah, and that's where the problem lies. If we had the same respect and deference. Has given to whiskey, and why don't we? Why? Because it's very, very simple. Because America has a local whis- whiskey industry to protect. Uh, Europe has a local whiskey and brandy industry to protect. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, notwithstanding all the wonderful uh, craft guys, you basically do not have local rum industries to protect. 
so you don't give a shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's yeah, the also. that's the bottom line. Um, yeah, I mean the shit that we've had to put up with. I was discussing yesterday when we were talking about you know GIs and bottling. Yeah, I mean Appleton bottles Jamaica rum, their lovely Jamaica rum in Canada. That's a legacy of the fact that you paid much more favorable tax rate if you bottled in Canada. So that's Canada protecting Canada at the expense of a poor, you know, developing country. Wow. And Mm -hmm. you don't have that put on Scotch whiskey or you don't have that put on brandy. You know, you you don't turn up and tell, you know, Hennessy brandy, well, you've got a bottle in Scotland. I mean, you've got a bottle in Canada. Uh, to get the tax breaks, it just doesn't happen, and so yeah. that's the legacy of that, and and it's a shame because yeah. it and it's wrong. Um, so this is what rum, where rum suffers. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's yep, understood. Yep. Thank you, uh, Jason. Okay. D- did you want to ask our closing question, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we always wrap up any episode with, and it's with an eye to the future, is what are you Foursquare most excited about going forward, rest of this year, into next year, five years, whatever you're most excited about looking forward? Well, the thing about this this game is never to get too excited because it's a game of patience. So <laughs> this, uh-huh. excitability is not a good quality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'll try not to be too excited. Um, because the... Because there's such a disconnect, you know, you might be putting something down a barrel now that you think is absolutely, you know, wonderful, but yeah. you're not to get excited about that. You have to look in your library <laughs> and look at the stuff that's coming, that's now turning 10 or 12 or 13 or 14 years old and, and, and get excited about that one. So you sure, have to, sure. you have to suppress excitement on anything in the last, you know, sort of eight to 10 years. Wow. And that's very important. <laughs> so it, it, excitability is something we have to control very much. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, that, um, that, that checks out. So I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> that, I tell you, we, we've been asking that question for so long. And, and I think for the most part, we've gotten some nice answers. Every once in a while, there's someone's trying to throw the brand twist on there, and we try to shake that loose. But yours, oh, I just love that. No, don't get too excited. You got to wait for this shit. Okay, yeah, I, right. I, I appreciate it's, that. It's, it's a game of it's a long, it's a long game. It's a long game. That's been great. Uh, do, do, do you think? Do you think rum has finally arrived? Do you? Oh do you no, think... we are only just getting warmed up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. that's good to hear. Okay, you, you think rum has got a much a much greater foothold oh, to yes. take. Yes, yes. No, we are scratching the surface. Um, but again, it's a very awesome. long game. This is not something that's going to... Yeah. We're not going to have a, a big chunk of uh, whiskey share in the next two or three years. This is a, you know, it's a very long horizon game. Because um, yeah. you have the other stocks. Yeah. It's it's one of the challenges, if, when I'm, especially when I'm dealing with the politicians, because the politicians want to hear that, you know, you're going to grow double digits... And you're going to be, you know, triple the export sales in three years. And they don't grasp so well the concept that what you're going to sell in the next three years or four years or five years has to be in your warehouse now. Mm-hmm, they don't, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't, they don't like grasping that. They don't mm-hmm. want to grasp it. They don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. P- 
politicians like to know you just buy a piece of equipment and, and you make more stuff and you sell yeah. more stuff. This is a long horizon game. Yeah. So it'll be... Uh, ter- terrific. Uh, glad to have your perspective on that. So it'll be overnight success after hundreds of years of production, basically? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been great, Richard. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate your thank time. Thank you. That was such a wonderful conversation with Richard. Just learning so much, hearing about Foursquare understanding a little bit more of of Mm. their processes. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated his response to us asking about being the the Port Ellen or the the Uh Pappy of rum. (laughs) And and I I thought that was a very tempered response. Yeah. uh, From from a chap who was who was very, very kind with his time. And what I really liked, his knowledge of how to present rum to a whiskey audience. Yes. Yep. You can tell he's done it many, many yeah. times. Yeah. And and I hope our audience, I hope our dear listeners enjoyed that angle from him. That that understanding of of how do you communicate rum to a whiskey audience. Yep. Yeah. And I loved the conversation for a for well, I loved the conversation period. But there's another reason I loved the conversation. It reminded me a bit of when you and I spoke with Sukinder Singh. And we pose a question and you're off to the races. Right? This yeah. was this was such an interesting interview in that Richard's thoughts, I'm sorry, Richard's answers were so thoughtful and so in-depth that it was better for us to say, you know what, let's hold back, let's let him finish his thought here and see where it goes from there. And, and he had, he had a, a lot to share, including his time, like you had said. And, and so, Richard, we appreciate all the time you gave us, all the, the great information you've given us, you've given our listeners. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast someday and maybe share a rum or six with you. <laughs> 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 yeah, it would be nice to, and we've we've said this for a lot of our interviews during lockdown and and during this period of much much less travel. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice to bump into him in a city one day and share some rums together, share some whiskies together, mm-hmm. and continue the conversation that got started. That's one of the harder aspects of all these distance interviews that we're conducting is we're not having the reason to meet these wonderful people in person, to see their facilities in person, yeah. to drink with them and chat with them and learn from them in person. It's starting to drag on here. We were just talking at the top of the episode about here we are now in September. Uh, we are closing in on six months of really just kind of shutting the doors on travel, on movement, on being with people, hmm. industry folk. Hey, we're, we're closing in on six months of that with certainly another six months in our future, yeah. uh, if not another nine months in our future. And so we're just hunkering down, doing our best. Hopefully listeners are uh, appreciating this, you know, oral trip that we're, that we're conducting through the industry, adjacent industries, rum and mezcal, cocktails, 
we're just trying to entertain ourselves and entertain our listeners along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were mentioning time and it passing and the fact that we're going to have another six to nine months of this, who knows what Best the hell is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, do you think the microphone picked up me dropping my head and just shaking it with, with tears in my eyes? I think it definitely picked that up, Joshua. (laughs) (laughs) And now for something completely different. You and I, Jason, have two bits of news to share with our listeners. You have one, which we discussed earlier, and I'm going to have a surprise one that you actually reminded me of when you started telling people we hope you're enjoying the podcast we hope it's keeping you sane as we talk about whiskey and rum and mezcal etc so before we get into that let's wake the dear paper boy first item of news that i loved in the intro to this, Joshua, when you talked about we discussed it earlier, I like the idea we had a an off-air production meeting <laughs> and actually laid out very carefully the structure of today's episode. So thank you for, for dropping those truth bombs on our listeners. Hashtag truth bombs. And it's going to take me less time to share the news than it did to actually introduce it. But... <laughs> As this episode drops, Mm -hmm. we will have our single cask of Penderen Welsh single malt uh, rapidly approaching port. And there's, there's inevitably delays at sea, there's inevitably delays at port, there's inevitably delays in clearing customs. But it is moving forward. And we very shortly will have our Penderen Welsh single malt for sale <laughs> on the Single Cast Nation website. This will not be a retail release. This will be for members of Single Cask Nation. And that is US-based members, of course, because we can only ship within the US. However, if you are overseas and you have a friend or family member that lives in the US, we, we can ship to them and... How they get the bottle to you is is another story that has nothing to do with us. But I'm so excited about that one because it is similar to our Aaron, our first Aaron, which was eight years bourbon, four years Pinot Noir, and similar to our Glen Murray, our Madeira one, which was six years bourbon, six years Madeira. You know, both of those were, I would call them double matured rather than finished. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I right? always call them double matured. And this Pandaren is three years bourbon, five years Grand Cru Burgundy. So double double maturation and just a really wild, wild, fruity Pandaren. So that, that's very exciting stuff. Yeah. Little, little bit of extra information for those who spend so much time listening to the podcast. That empty... Grand Cru Barrique <laughs> has already been refilled by us. Mm-hmm. We have put some other spirit in Scotland into the ex-Grand Cru, and 
you will all see that in the future. Oh, gosh, I cannot wait. The fruitiness from the Pandaren, the earthiness from the Burgundy, and then the other stuff that we put in there, it's all going to come together in a beautiful way. The other stuff being the whiskey. We didn't add, like, peppercorns or <laughs> old gym socks. Well, there <laughs> the was... whiskey that will remain unnamed. But at the end, you know, it said, and salt to taste, so... Before we go on to your bit of news, I just want to read the label note, because it excites me. <laughs> <laughs> Oily and salty, with wonderful dried apricot and coffee notes mm. that pleasantly dries from palate to finish. The dried raspberry notes on the finish resonate. Be sure to notice the balance between earthy and fruity flavours with this terrific little drinker. There you go, right? Wasn't I just 59. saying... 59... 59 point what? Is it a straight 59 or is it? 59.9% alcohol. All right. That's a, that's a big one. Eight years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit of oomph to it. Mm-hmm. So looking forward to releasing that. Uh, I know there's a lot of excitement in the nation for that Grand Cru Barrique. Yeah. yeah. And it will be one of 269 bottles going on sale. So probably a... A quick mover on the website probably won't hang around too long. And that'll be for $120. So, Joshua, what are you sitting on? Well, just want to let everybody know that as of the day that this episode goes live, the previous day, we were with Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy, and so, you know, you had mentioned that people are coming to us to listen about, hear about whiskey, to hear about rum, to hear about mezcal. Just a few couple months ago, we were speaking with uh, Dr. Daniel Whiteson, talking about the universe. And now we're going to be, and, and this is our first travel trip. We're going to be, you know, within spitting distance. <laughs> of course, we won't spit on them. We'll be within an eye shot of of Will Oldham and we'll be conducting that interview in person. So What's an eye shot? With an eye shot. Eye shot. With an eye, eye shot. shot. The no, like an eye shot. Like you not no, not like eye shot the sheriff. Okay. Like you could see eye it. Like, eye shot. Like he's so close you could shoot him. Because you can see him with your with your eye. So so we're spitting on him. We're shooting him. No wonder people have stopped meeting us in person for our interviews. <laughs> My goodness, uh, this is not a way to treat somebody who's invited oh, you into their home. No, it's not. But uh, yeah, so we're, we're we're incredibly excited to a bring in another little detour for our listeners, but b actually be on the road safely, masked, the whole thing. Uh, but but having an actual sit down with someone, I'm I can't tell you. I mean, I can tell you, and I will tell you. I'm very excited for this. Well, and I have to tell you, not only will I be masked, I will also be ball gagged. <laughs> I am taking my safety yeah. to, to be paramount. But I'm going to look straight out of central casting from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Where's Zed going to be in all of this? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Is there anything that you want to get us out of here on, Jason? Before we wrap it up, it's worth reminding 
the dear listeners, how they can send physical mail to us. Oh. Especially in a, in a lockdown, in a global pandemic, you're going to your post office every day, twice a day, sometimes three <laughs> times a day. You're just, you know, you know flaunting your way through the, the lobby, no mask, no gloves, just to retrieve physical mail from our dear listeners. And so we should probably take a moment to remind them how to send that, because this is now a 1980s podcast. <laughs> and if you want to reply, send a self-addressed envelope. Yeah, S-A-S-E, self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> S-A-S-E. And then swack, sealed with a kiss. You can send that too. But during COVID, do not kiss the letter. Do not kiss the letter. Yeah. Do not spit on it. Do not shoot it. Do not do any of the things Joshua would do to a guest of One Nation Under Whiskey. Let me tell you something really quickly. So I, I have a, uh, a dentist and, you know, so I would see his dental hygienist. And so she does the teeth cleaning and then he comes in to check for cavities and, and all that stuff, right? This is how the trip to the dentist works. And so for years, you know, he, I, would, I would get the cleaning and then he'd come in and, you know, he's checking and he's, he's got the water, you know, kind of cleaning your mouth and everything like that. And when he would go in for the suction, he would, he would say, regardless of who, who it is, he would say, give it a little kiss. <laughs> what? <laughs> to, the, what? To, to the suction hose. So that way you're closing yes. your mouth and it's, it's slurping all of the water out. My guess is someone complained because he doesn't say it anymore, and I miss it. I want him to say, "Give it a little kiss." You're 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 the man for making your own T-shirts. Next time you go to him, you got to put on a T-shirt that says, "Give it a little kiss." Ah. You have to. Speaking of which, there's still a T-shirt that I've been meaning meaning to make. We have my daughter, one of her oldest friends, came to our house one time. And we offered her a glass of water. And now on our sink at the time at our old house, we had a, we had a filter, you know, so you could filter the... <laughs> Something Joshua does not have on himself. <laughs> and we you said, do you, do you want some water? And she said, yeah, sure. And, and I go to the sink to, to turn it on. She said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't drink sink water. And so Good I was honor. desperate to make an I don't drink sink water t-shirt. <laughs> But uh, because it's such a hilarious and stupid comment, you know, that a seven-year-old would make. Can I tell you about that? So last week, All right. and you, you know this because I told you this, our, yeah. our power was out. They were doing some work on our street. Yeah. And our power was out from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. Very convenient. Yeah, okay. Right, it's perfect. Especially during a lockdown, everybody's home, trying to work from home. Yeah, man, Not, a problem. Yeah. Not a problem. Not a problem. And um, I went into my kitchen to get some water and some ice from my fridge. Uh And of course, with the power out, there was no ice and no running water through the fridge. And I looked over at the sink (laughs) and thought, do I have to drink water from the sink? And guess what? Guess what? I waited until the power came back on. And the second the power came back on... I ran to the fridge, filled my cup with ice and water to the very top, drank it, drank it, drank it, refilled it, 
and then walked away and I said, hey, you want to take back my power? Take it back. I've got my fridge filtered water and my ice. So I feel her. I think she's spot on. I don't drink sink water either. Would you ever wear one of those suits like they do on the desert planet of Arrakis, where it just recycles all of your, your bodily liquids and converts it into drinkable water? No, it would have to recycle my bodily fluids, run it through my fridge, <laughs> put it through a chill and a filter. Yeah, I'd happily drink it, yeah. Sign me up. So if people want to mail us, do not seal the envelope with a kiss. Do not give it do a not. little kiss. Do not. You, but please address that. You, yeah. you can smack it and rub it, though, but don't kiss it. Can they flip it down? Yep. Okay. Yep, they just can't kiss it. Okay. Or spit on it. <laughs> uh, send it to J and J Spirits, P.O. Box oh. 335, Guilford, Connecticut. That's G U I L F O R D, state code C T, 06437. And if you want to reach us the new old fashioned way, you could email us questions at One Nation Under Whiskey. You could tweet at us at One Nation Whiskey. You can Instagram message us at One Nation Under Whiskey. You could reach out to us through the Facebooks. Just search us up in the Facebook search bar and we are there. And remember that uh, whiskey is spelled without the E. And uh, because of how long this episode is today, we're not reading an email, uh, but we still wanted to give you, the listener, the tools to write an email or write a letter. And, And we will get to them. We're, we've been having fun with them as of late. So we appreciate any correspondence you want to send us. All true. All true. We've got wonderful listeners all around the world. And we just want to hear from you, whether it be send us a postcard from your own town, from your coast. If you're getting out and about, send us something that shows you've been out and about. Instead of us locked in our wee hussies, going stir crazy. Mm. Yep. And when I say we hoosies. Anywho. Okay, clang your juice bottles together there, fasting boy. I'm going to clang my knife to my teacup. And some of us are going to clang with good old-fashioned glassware that is devoid of rum. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, everybody.